Hello and welcome to Here's Where It Went Wrong, the podcast where every week we have on one of our favorite comedians to talk about one of their favorite things, and we trace its history to find out exactly where it all went off the rails. I'm Winsor Powers. I'm joined as always by my co-host, Andrew Nadeau. Andrew, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing so great. This one was so fun. We recorded it immediately. You said like top five episode. I agree. We had Ellie Kremendal on. She's been featured in Funny or Die. She recently did a show at, at Ars Nova. She is so ridiculously funny. I got to meet her when she did Cabin Fever, and I've just loved her in everything I've ever seen her in. She's so good. She's so She's good. so good. And she wanted to come on today to talk about secret societies, which you did a ton of research on and found some very cool stuff. Yeah, yeah. I do not envy you, Andrew. I yeah. realize how much work you put in, <laughs> though I will say I think I had my work cut out for me when I got the topic of secret societies. The secret was a little heavy-handed. I should have considered how difficult it was to research a thing that nobody's allowed to talk about, <laughs> but you did good. Yeah, you should have just been like, when we want you to prove the existence of Jesus Christ. Like, <laughs> can you do that one, please? You found some very cool stuff. This was a really great one to go through. And Ellie has a, a fantastic background as a therapist. And I thought she had some wonderful insight to like why this would come to exist and how people would respond to it. She was just the perfect guest for it. Those are some of my favorite parts where she was talking about that. But don't take my word for it. Let's get into it. Let's go. Ellie Kremendahl, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. You and I got to do Cabin Fever together, and we've been talking a lot just because we're in a couple comedian rooms now with some very funny people. You've been busy. You have a kid. I mean, you had a kid and then did a show at Ars Nova, right? I did. So I have two kids. I have a three and a half year old and I have an almost six month old. And yeah, when my six month old was born, my solo show went up like two weeks later. Oh, wow. It was like, it was digital. The first two weeks of her life, I was like editing my show on my computer with her, like in the little baby boppy, like on the table next to me. I saw your videos because you do some great sketches and it was like two days before before you had a kid and then like a week after you had new videos out, <laughs> which was incredible. That was nuts. I knew that was going to happen when I took that residency, but I was like, let me just do it and deal with the ramifications later. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to turn out fine. Yeah. <laughs> so that was massive turnaround. So what have you been doing now? I know you've also been featured in Funny or Die. You've done work all over. I mostly partially because of the pandemic. So because I have these two little kids that are unvaccinated, I haven't been performing very much. So I've just been focusing really hard on more comedy writing stuff. And I've been working on some TV pilots. So that's like been really my whole focus for the last six months. That's been our focus too. Yeah. Or was one of those where it's like, as long as I'm in, let's just create as much as we possibly can. And I know you have background as a therapist, which was great. I really wanted to have you on that topic that involved some degree of human nature being so strange. And I think you picked a perfect one for this in covering secret societies, because this is an incredibly old thing and an incredibly current thing and never makes a ton of sense, but people are super into it. So what was your interest here? I think I'm drawn to anything that's like secret or occult in any way or potentially like nefarious. So it's just fascinating. It really is. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm just sort of like contrarian sort of person. So if you're like, you can't know about this, I'm like, I must know everything. I know. Watch me. <laughs> when did some great research for this? 
Can I take a quick moment here? Yeah, please. So Andrew, typically for our history-based episodes, which is a lot of our episodes, it's the majority of our episodes. He does the research for them. I usually do like the pop culture-y, you know, like if we're doing a movie series or a sport or something, I'll do the research for that. But Andrew was like, hey, can you help me a little bit? We're doing a lot of history. I'm really swamped with work. Can you do the next topic? And I was like, definitely, buddy. I got you. Just give me the topic and I'll research it. I'll do great. And he was like, cool. I want you to research secret societies. <laughs> Guess what's a big feature in secret societies, Andrew? Is it being secret? Yes, yeah, being secret. <laughs> Here's the thing. I was so disappointed that I couldn't research this one for the same reason because I'm trying to find like a work-life balance thing and I hate that. I just want to work all the time. That was so much easier, except I'm exhausted. <laughs> so I was like, oh, this is going to be so hard to research because all the information is hidden. And I was so excited. And then I got staying with work and I was like, damn, I'm so jealous of Wen who has to do this super hard research. Yeah, and like <laughs> What I ended up doing is it's all based on the Stonecutters episode of The Simpsons, so I hope you're ready. I was hoping it would be all based on the 90s classic Skull and Bones. I love that movie. Me too. Sorry, that <laughs> actor from fucking Dawson's Creek. Remember, what's his name? Joshua Jackson. Oh, God, yeah. I remember sneaking that movie, and, like, I thought this was, like, a thing made up for movies, and then I told somebody about it, and, like, they were just like, yeah, that's real. And I was like, what? I know, it blew my mind as well. Oh God, I just remember <laughs> how that movie was so into rowing. They made rowing seem so important. Well, it was Yale. Yeah, which I get it. It's a bigger deal at Yale. But when you start off with that, it's like, all right, how much do I really care about these people? Was it actually Skull and Bones or were they like doing that thing where it was like a wink, wink, nudge, nudge? I think they called it The Skulls. The Skulls. That's what it was. Yeah. The Skulls. Yes, The Skulls. It came out in 2000 and starred Paul Walker. Didn't they do a sequel too? I think there's like a whole series of these mother fuckers. Either way, I'm betting they were terrible if they did more. <laughs> this is a hard one to keep story going. Okay, well, let's see. The Skulls 2 has a rating of 4.6. The Skulls 3 has a rating of 4.7. So it went from 5.6 to 4.6 to 4.7, which means the trilogy ended on a higher note than the second one. Wow. Also, can we mention that all of us are trying to get our work turned into show and movies and some guy who created a 5.6 movie got a chance to make two more. That is infuriating, just in concept. Well, here's the thing. We were just talking about how fun the movie The Skulls was, so of course they're going to greenlight two more. <laughs> it's being talked about on a podcast 21 years later, Andrew. You're saying that that didn't deserve a sequel? You know what? You're right. They did their job. You're right. <laughs> they did. I mean, it's like there's always going to be a market for like a garbage movie like that. Yeah. Like delicious, <laughs> horrible candy. Because here's the thing about it is that like I absolutely believe everything in that movie could happen with the hazing and the murder and the secret society except it wouldn't be nearly as dramatic it would just be I'm going to call my father and he's going to take care of it <laughs> it, would, it would be like a 20 minute film that is so true daddykins yeah <laughs> daddykins it happened again <laughs> oh blast I just remembered that I think the moment that I became more interested in secret societies is I know this person who went to Yale and she told me once just in passing so casually like it was nothing that you know there was some secret society at Yale that had like some book in a library that if you 
like opened the book, you knew where it was, you know, it was a hollowed out book. And inside of it was like a glass, basically like a tiny goblet full of cocaine. And it was <laughs> just there for students in the society when they like were up studying all night and they needed like a little pick me up. And I was like, that is so insane. And amazing. Also, it feels unnecessarily dramatic because I feel like it is probably not hard to get cocaine at Yale. Totally. There's like pomp and circumstance to it. It's very heightened. And I think that's what I like about it. I like the sort of pageantry. Yeah. You have to learn the Dewey Decimal System. You can't just call Mike. (laughs) Right. What's the fun in calling Mike? And also Mike might have like shit cocaine, like the best cocaine that you could ever find. I'm just imagining one guy going to the library, like to look up horticulture or whatever the book was and like pulling it, opening it up and seeing a goblet full of cocaine and just immediately replacing it with like powdered sugar. (laughs) And just like, guys, you're never going to believe what happened to me today. But how infuriated would it be if it's 2 a.m., you're up trying to study, you find the book you need and it's cut out inside and you just have cocaine and it's like, all right, well, cool. Now I guess I can't research. I'm not going to look a gift horse in the mouth here. (laughs) I think this might be more personality revealing than I intended that I'm like, God damn it, I wanted to read and now I just have this stupid cocaine and a goblet. <laughs> That's definitely you. I mean, and I can only speak for myself as like an alcoholic, like I've been in recovery for 12 years. So if I found that goblet of cocaine, like when I was still drinking and using drugs, I would have been like, this is a gift from God specifically <laughs> to me. Okay, God, you fucking rule. <laughs> Hell yeah. But imagine they just keep getting more and more of these secret societies. So like eventually like every other book, this poor life librarian has to just like dump it out and put the other one back on the shelf like just trying to organize and this constantly gets ruined for her. that's so interesting like there's a person whose whole job is cocaine goblet filler <laughs> i'm just imagining if there was a sober person who stumbled upon this book and was just like i think god told me to do drugs again <laughs> So I know we want to get into the history of this, too, because when work so hard here. But do we have any personal experience here with Secret Societies to begin with? I couldn't tell you. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Wen. So, Ellie, was there any other than your Yale friend? No, other than I think in maybe fourth grade, I had like a little secret society with some of my girlfriends, you know, on the playground. And it was all very exciting. Like we had a book with all the rules of the society and it was very exclusive. We were giant nerds. And I think most of our activities were basically like improv games. Yeah. <laughs> That's the extent of my secret society experience. Just reenacting whose line is it anyway bits. Basically. <laughs> Fantastic. You know, what else can this broom be? What else? <laughs> what else can it be? Honestly, that's basically what I believe adult secret societies are too. You kind of nailed it pretty young. That That's it. But I had a friend who was a member of the Freemasons. Wow. I mean, that wow was far too generous. The thing is, at this point, you just have to have like two people who are members suggest you as a member. This is not a hard thing to break into at this point. But he had this little book with him because apparently you have to memorize basically an entire book of rules. And the book just has the first letter of each word. So if you like forget something, you can check and see this letter. And this is probably what it was. But you have to memorize it other than that. And it was just like, I get it. At one point in time, the Freemasons had massive power and being a member of them basically meant you were going to have an incredibly successful career. But now it's essentially dudes hanging out out 
That's it. It was just guys who wanted, to, and you have to pay dues. You have to pay just to say you're a member of the Freemasons and not have anyone be particularly impressed about it. Like that feels like a lot of effort for modern day. I will say, Andrew, you're talking a lot about how unimpressive it is, but you only know one member. So you're still like not even close to getting recommended for the Freemasons. Like you need to meet a second Freemasons guy to even be considered for membership. At one point, we ran into someone that we both kind of knew and he said, oh, it turns out he's a Freemason too. And it was this very much like they were both very excited, like instant. We we have to do anything the other one wants now. <laughs> and I'm like, all right, do either of you have connections to help the other one? And they're like, no, not not really. But this is exciting. Wait, you bumped into someone and they were immediately just like, I'm a Freemason. I imagine there was a ring or something. I, I don't know. <laughs> or it's, it, they were so unsecret about it. It was something you were always looking for an opportunity to tell people that you're a Freemason. It comes up as frequently as it can. <laughs> it's the veganism of secret societies. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> That's basically what it was. It's CrossFit Secret Society. <laughs> interesting though like did they think that that's impressive like if someone told me that I would be like okay that's like I don't care and also that's kind of weird yeah I feel like it was exciting for them enough so that you feel like it's exciting to tell other people but yeah I feel like it's very much like people who are like super excited to share their IQ kind of thing (laughs) where it's like I've got this thing and I'm gonna find a way because it's exclusive and it's like but okay but is it really and then it turns out no not really. Yeah, it's like, you know, middle-aged people still bringing up their SAT scores. Exactly. That's why I did terrible at my SAT, so I never have to worry about that. Me too. Uh, <laughs> I didn't even take the SATs. You did <laughs> I took the ACT. I took both. I was too lazy to take both. Good for you. Is it? <laughs> Is it? <laughs> I got a degree in musical theater. They weren't really checking my SAT scores that closely. Yeah, totally. I went to film school. I don't think that it was the most important thing in my application. Well, and when you did do a ton of research here, so how about you get us into some of the history of secret societies? Fair enough. Well, I guess to start, one of the main things we have to do is define what a secret society is because that is in dispute amongst a lot of researchers. So the parameters are usually dependent on how much the group insists on secrecy, the way knowledge is stored in the society and transmitted among the members, denial of membership in the group, which your Freemason buddies fucked up, the bonds. <laughs> formed between members and the group's rites and ceremonies. So anthropologically and historically, secret societies have been linked deeply to the concept of the Mannerbund, which is an all-male warrior band or warrior society in pre-modern cultures. So like that is our first idea of what a secret society is. It's just these warrior guys that would all get together and beat the shit out of each other and be like, we're brothers. It's Fight Club. It is early Fight Club. Yeah, It's Fight Club. First Fight Club, yes. (laughs) So a lot of people try to decide how they're going to define what a secret society is. And one of the first people to do this was Alan Axelrod, who was the author of the International Encyclopedia of Secret Societies and Fraternal Orders, fun name for a book. Love it. And he defined it as three points. It's exclusive, claims to own special secrets, and shows a strong inclination to favor its members. That continues on for a while, right? That's kind of the same thing that it has now. It's like, hey, we're groups here. I'm going to give you favors. Everyone else sucks is the general theme. Yes, that is exactly 
exactly kind of like the underlying theme to most secret societies, as we'll get into, is just like, hey, everyone here is cool. Everyone outside the circle, fuck them. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, another historian, uh, Richard B. Spence of the University of Idaho, offered a different three points. He said the group's existence is usually not kept secret, but some beliefs or practices are concealed from the public and require an oath of secrecy and loyalty to learn. So that's where your Freemasons are actually in the clear. That part where they had the book and they had to learn it. And I mean, he showed me the book. It just had a bunch of letters and he was excited to show me that book. So <laughs> all books have letters, Andrew. Stop being impressed. <laughs> but it was just well, the first letter of each word. It was like, all right, somebody had to print that book. It felt like so much effort. Just give him a full book. I would have taken that book and I would have used it as a crossword puzzle. Yeah. I say crossword puzzle like I'm well read. I mean a word jumble. <laughs> I don't do crossword puzzles. I'm an idiot. But I do do word searches. <laughs> the next point that Richard B. Spin says was this, that the group promises superior status or knowledge to its members and that the group's membership is in some way restrictive, such as based on race, sex, religious affiliation, or by invitation only. So Spencer claimed that all secret societies tend to rely on factionalism as well as group infighting, as well as a tendency to self-aggrandize. He noticed that a lot of secret societies claimed that they had a history that went way back further than you could actually properly document. So like a big part of your secret society is lying about how old your secret society is. I would not have come up with that in advance, but that makes so much sense now that like, of course, that's what they're going to lie about because you can't be like the first one to start it. That's not cool. Like, hey, you guys want to hang out and do something? It was like, no, my great, great grandfather started this when he was probably president of something. Yeah, yeah. You can't just be like, you are part of a fraternal line that goes all the way back to Nick. Yeah. (laughs) You know, this is like sort of a twist, but I just can't stop thinking about, well, I'm just very aware of the fact that it seems like all of these secret societies are all men. Like I haven't ever heard of one that's women and maybe there are some, but I'm having this thought about like if young boys were taught and encouraged how to have intimate friendships with each other, <laughs> would this be necessary? Like, is this ultimately like it's, it's very fucked up in how it ends up happening with like control of money and power and resources and all, and like opportunities. But really is the is the core human need underneath just to like be close to like other boys yeah <laughs> that Honestly, it makes so much sense. And because, I mean, you're right. At this point, most spaces were men only anyway. It's not like it was hard to just hang out with the bros if that's what you wanted to do. It was all about the fact that, like, no, we're brothers now. And I can tell you I love you safely because we have the code that says it. Yeah, because we did that weird stuff to each other. We now know that we're safe enough to say you're my friend. Right. (laughs) Yeah, or even, like, some of that weird stuff. Like, is that a sort of displaced way to connect even physically? like stuff like branding each other or like vomiting into someone's mouth, which is like something I just made up. But maybe it I was going to say, is that, is that a thing? I don't know. You know what, Andrew? It's just what came out. It's the image I had. I don't know if it's real. But my point is it's very intimate. <laughs> just like a bird-based secret society. It's like, we got to recreate it, man. I had a group of guy friends in college that like one night I was busy and they all hung out with each other and somehow this group of guys got really drunk went to home depot bought a coat hanger a (laughs) blowtorch and like gauze and stuff which i'm just like that poor cashew (laughs) and they went home and they got drunk and branded each other using the coat hanger and blowtorch they branded each other with the letter 
pee? And I said, what is the pee for? And they said, pinto beans. I was like, why pinto beans? I was like, look, we could only make a pee from the coat hanger. So like, we just had to make up a thing that it was. And they kept insisting for like three years that they were going to like, induct me into their little group and for three years i had to tell them that i had no interest at all and then branding me with a coat hanger and a blowtorch <laughs> and this is a group of men that like i would think would have no trouble expressing like friendship and intimacy with each other but they immediately they had one night where me who would normally be like guys is this a good idea i wasn't there and they just went immediately to like as savage as possible like guys around a bonfire kind of behavior yeah when my really close friends in college and i would get really drunk like sometimes we would all end up in like a massive cuddle like puppy pile you know yeah that's a great solution to that right but i don't know like even if you were really close that group of friends like I feel like cis straight men especially with maybe they weren't all but if like it's not like that common to hug and cuddle. Here's the thing, not all of them. That's the wildest thing. <laughs> okay, so there was more of like a mixed group. Yeah, it was a mixed group. Gender or sexuality. It was all guys. It, it was, was all guys. guys. Was it all cis men? Yes, it was all cis men. But not all straight men. Not all straight men. That was their one saving grace in all of this. <laughs> okay. Was there any point when you first found out about this where you felt left out or was it just entirely, this is so fucking stupid? <laughs> it was always, this is so fucking stupid. There was never a point where they were like, do you want to be branded as well? That I like ever considered it for a moment. And like, they threatened me with it like a few times where I was like, I got uncomfortable. They're like, we're going to do it. I was like, please don't even threaten to brand me. I will have you arrested. Yeah. yeah. Like our friendship is done the second you even like make a move for it. We're not like, we're not entertaining this thought. My personal mental illness is that I would have immediately been like, I can't believe this happened without me. We're fucking going to Home Depot right now. We're doing me. Like I want my pee. <laughs> I don't think I'd want the brand. I definitely feel like, okay, well, you guys have like this super close bond now and I can't get on that. I would try to like, maybe I could accidentally trip and fall on a P-shaped thing. I mean, like, I don't want the full brand, but maybe I can have like a day where there's like an imprint, something to feel like part of it. <laughs> Here's the thing. I checked in a few years ago and most of them said that it faded. And I was like, yeah, because it was a coat hanger and a blowtorch, <laughs> not like heavy metal. And now we're just like a bunch of guys just being like, do it. Do it. Like, fight <laughs> on this shirt. And like, they complained about it forever. They were just like, complain about it hurting. I'd be like, yeah, because you, <laughs> you branded each other. Yourself. I think the part that bothers me more than a lot of this is just the fact that at no point did any of them say, guys, we should get a dictionary and pick a better word. <laughs> <laughs> I think part of the appeal was how dumb the word was. I could see that and kind of like, well, we have a coat hanger brand. We should lean into this and not pretend we think this is high art. <laughs> but <laughs> all right, that is a fantastic. Fantastic story. Sorry, had to segue because what? I love it. That was so good. I mean, for me, because I was on the outside who got to listen to the story. <laughs> I didn't have to explain a brand to everyone I've met for the rest of my life that saw me shirtless. <laughs> so our third researcher to define secret societies was David V. Barrett, who was the author of Secret Societies from the Ancient and Arcane to the Modern and Clandestine, which great title as well. And he said that a secret society to qualify, it has to have carefully graded and progressed teachings, teachings that are only available to selected individuals, promise to teach hidden and unique truths to its members, 
and truths bring personal benefits beyond the reach and even understanding of the uninitiated. I find that very cool. And when Ellie and I first started talking about a topic, we discussed cults first, and this was a perfect segue into this because there was so much overlap. Basically, the original secret societies that I found were just religions that weren't the main religion, so you had to keep it secret. And then it ended up being such a big thing that you get more and more people in and you have the rules around it, but almost all of them did have some level of... Yes, you're getting access to the same thing as cults today, to the real information from the real God. And here's the real path to the afterlife or whatever it was. But it was interesting how much of this was first born out of we have to keep it secret to then the future of this is going to be so cool if we keep it secret, guys. <laughs> like with religious groups, it's just like we have to keep this secret or people will kill us. Right. And now it's just like we can't let people know about this weird masturbation stuff that we do. Right. <laughs> so while researching, I found out that secret societies as a topic was not really of interest to archaeologists for a long time, really until as recently as the 1970s. So a big reason is, as the name implies, they are secret societies. They are hard to keep track of throughout history, and they lie about their own past. So it's just very hard to know, just like, okay, well, what is this? You heard a rumor that there's a group of people that secretly did some stuff. I can't do anything with this. (laughs) Most of them don't keep their written records. When they do, it's apparently a little book with only the first letter of each word (laughs) written down. Their members, in most cases, are required to deny their involvement, so it's hard to know who was even in one of these. It's just hard to verify any of this information. This started to change when anthropologist Brian Hayden of Simon Fraser University began to research an elaborate grave that was found for a boy outside of Estonia. And so pretty much what happened was they researched this, and this boy was in this way above his social status grave. It was highly decorated. In his his hands, they placed the wings of cranes, and they also gave a bone flute that was made out of bird bones just laid on his person. He was not a shaman. He was too young to be of any note, really. And they theorized that this child was actually born into a secret society, which had its own elaborate burial rituals. So generally, I am learning this stuff when I do the research, and then I have to call Wen and say, this thing is so cool. There's a kid that was buried with crane wings, and he has to be like, I don't I don't know what you want to do with that. <laughs> <laughs> This is fascinating to get to hear because I am so excited right now, guys. I think this is absolutely amazing. The idea that you are born, that this is so old too. Yeah, this is ritualistic. This is so important that everyone knows about it. They're going to put money that I'm sure is significant to the culture into this just to give this boy who has not done anything yet the burial of someone with status because he is born into the society. It's fascinating. I think it's super cool. And I didn't put this in the notes, but Hayden also had students that were curious about these Paleolithic children's handprints that were on this one structure. And so he pretty much sent his students out to figure out what was going on. And they realized that it was actually part of a secret society that was doing it to like keep track of just like these are the hands of the members when they are children, like when they're getting initiated at very young ages. So like that really interested his interest in the topic. And he said that nobody in archaeology had really talked about secret societies. But the more I looked into them, the more I became convinced that they were potentially a very powerful factor in cultural and religious development development throughout history. Wow. Right? It's pretty wild. Which absolutely makes sense, too. I mean, it's like they are now, too, obviously, like the Freemasons aren't. But as we talked about, yeah, we still keep getting presidents that are members of the societies. Like the connections you make from these incredibly stupid societies because your dad was a member of this incredibly stupid society are massive. It's not the Illuminati stuff that people want to be out there. (laughs) But no, there's a huge level of success just from meeting people that are also members of the society. Right. And Hayden claimed that even though these records 
records don't exist because they do not really write down and share their records, you can actually find the influence of secret societies based on structures that were left behind. So one of the main signs that a secret society did exist was that you would find a highly elaborate or decorated structure that clearly was very expensive, but it could only accommodate a small group of people. So while you did have churches in towns that were very elaborate and gorgeous, they were meant for everybody. They would find these structures that were small, that would not house the entire community, and therefore it gave them an indication that maybe there was a society here that was meeting in secret that was made up of wealthy elites. That's so cool. Sorry, I'm as shocked by my own research. Great job, Win. See, the research part <laughs> is fun. You did great. <laughs> so also in prehistoric times and as far as today, secret societies closely linked themselves with awe-inspiring, powerful animals. So that's why a lot of these secret societies have mascots that are lions, wolves, bears, bison, eagles, mammoths, anything that would typically strike fear and be avoided by everyday people. It was them kind of saying like, we are the mightiest in society. Everyone should fear us, but don't tell anyone we exist. <laughs> but we're a dirty little secret. <laughs> like They're all mighty and all powerful, but also they're just like, but don't look at us, we're shy. <laughs> the symbol of power was very important for secret societies because they tend to only develop, really, and this kind of comes down to it, they only exist in areas where an economic surplus can be created and they typically seek to entrench the wealth of their members and provide generational wealth, which is why so many of these societies are a blood lineage. You will be brought in because you are a member of a family that is already existing within the group. They would pretty much set out to make sure that their own wealth would increase, that their children would always be provided for, and that they would always help each other in that way. So pretty much if there's an area where you can become independently wealthy and you can work the system to become rich, secret societies will be formed in order to help that happen but also form to make sure that doesn't happen, right? And only stays within their family. Yeah, exactly. They'll bring you in. They'll bring like, ah, you got one past us. Get on in here, you little scamp. <laughs> but mostly bring you in to make sure you don't give it to anyone else. Exactly, which is like, there's this whole idea of new money and old money. And a lot of old money does come from, in some branches, these secret societies that have their own culture and everything. So when new money comes in, it usually gets absorbed pretty quickly or else the new money is just kind of on an out group and there's no protection from the group. Right. Which is amazing how much new money is looked down upon. Like the idea of earning it yourself is offensive. It's like if you weren't given your money for no effort, you're not really rich. Yeah, that is so crazy. I haven't thought about it from that lens before. Like that it's, you know, the earning part is looked down upon. No, you shouldn't have to work for money. You should be given it by your granddaddy. That's how you know you're rich. Everyone wants to say, though you pulled yourself up by your bootstrap story, but only if they can then say, now you have to join our little club and be part of our little society. And if you're not, well, then fuck you. We'll just start saying that you're the weird eccentric over here on the side. We're the establishment and you're just trying to fuck our shit up and we need that. That's our money, actually. You should give us that money. <laughs> they love this story of putting yourself by your bootstrap, but obviously they don't want anybody to do it. My grandfather was born broke. You know, he sold, he had two shirts, he had one to wash, one to wear. And then he retired when he was 30. So he did very well. And my grandmother was born, you know, upper middle class area, but she wanted to be wealthy and wanted to be part of the society and was, but it was entirely based around that pretense of I can buy absolutely anything. I have far more money than I actually do and not letting people know that you're new money. You had to pretend it was generational. The way that she was so protective of this status for the worst people was very 
strange to watch, especially, you know, growing up in my family was like, okay, we don't want to be like that. I get the appeal of having a lot of money. We're going to try to avoid becoming those people. Probably for the best. Yeah. (laughs) So Hayden also noticed that a lot of these societies in the records that they were able to obtain would actually engage in acts of cannibalism as a way to scare newer or young members, as well as create a sense of camaraderie by engaging in taboo acts together. Like you're breaking down social norms. You're doing something that's so unthinkable, but you're all doing it together and therefore it's going to strengthen your bond because no one can know that you did this but each other. But this is very much the if I go down you all go down and it's presented as a sense of like no this is binding us but it's also this very overt threat of now you're in too deep too. Totally. I mean, all the teens in I Know What You Did Last Summer were part of their own secret society after they hit that guy with their car and pushed right. him in the lake. That was a little, <laughs> that was a microcosm. Another 90s classic. <laughs> I feel like there's such a huge degree too of the same hazing that you get in like Greek society where it's the idea of you have made someone, you've broken them down enough that they become emotionally dependent on you and now we're instantly brothers and we're bonded and now it's you need us forever. It's it very, it all of it reeks of abuse. <laughs> no, no, it definitely does change into like the cannibalism, hopefully, I don't know for sure, like was phased out and replaced with things just like, you got to put this funnel in your butt for us to put wine in, <laughs> which was a real thing that happened at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. And they shut that fraternity down because a kid almost died. Holy shit. They used wine? Boxed wine. Franzia. <laughs> All right. Well, at least it was cheap wine. It just feels like a waste. Oh man, but that was... It's terrible to die by boxed wine up your butt. <laughs> by butt chugging, yes. If you were to actually die that way, it would have been just a horrible thing. And like, oh my God, I was in college around this time and like I went to a different college, but I was watching the press conference and it was all these fraternity guys coming out in sunglasses, like standing there and the lawyer came out and he was just like, we just want everyone to know that this was not a homosexual act. Like that was their thing that they were concerned about. A kid almost died and they were all out there just like, this wasn't gay. And we want to get that out there right now. Oh my God. Which, like, I would feel so much better if they said, no, this was just a gay thing. It was a sex thing. Yeah. yeah. This was a sex thing gone wrong. <laughs> like, we did not force him. This was a pleasurable experience <laughs> for him. Like, no, it was just like, no, no, we forced him to do it for our own enjoyment, but not sexually. It's like, that's worse. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's better to be like a sociopath yeah. than a queer person. <laughs> like, what you said was worse. <laughs> So anyways, whether they presented themselves as religious, artistic, or political, many secret societies existed to create and expand the wealth of their members, and that's pretty much a founding tenet of these as they are presented throughout history. Which means it's also going to lead into the where it went wrong of it all, which is they exist to increase and expand the wealth of its members to the detriment of everyone else. I mean, you could say that pretty much the very idea of a secret society is kind of bad. If you want to segue this right into the where it went wrong, because yeah, this feels like it. Yeah, (laughs) this is definitely where it went wrong. Yeah, it's just like hardcore late stage capitalism. Right. (laughs) So, I mean, they sound so interesting in concept, but then you realize what they're built on. It's like the mere fact that they are a thing is dangerous to everyone who's not a part of it. I mean, they're so bad that to have a political secret society in Italy is a crime. You cannot have any policy or political based secret society in Italy because they've shown themselves to have so much power before in the past. 
the Pope. You guys still have that. So that's maybe hasn't well, hasn't worked. I mean, you could kind of say that all of Catholicism is like a really big secret society. There's a lot of pageantry and like there's stuff I don't know about. There's stuff under the Vatican that I'm not going to find out about in my whole life, even though I've been a Catholic the whole time, <laughs> not practicing, but I've been born into it. They baptized me against my will as a child. <laughs> so, yeah, that absolutely feels like that. But also partly what bothers me about this is, you know, there are Italian secret societies and they feel so cool now that it's illegal. And it's like, you didn't get any cooler. It's just a crime now. And you know, that makes me so angry for absolutely no reason. <laughs> I will say the crime kind of makes it cooler. Yeah. <laughs> I'll give them that. So we cannot really get into all of the history of secret societies because they're so nebulous and also secret that it's impossible to really say. So we're going to hit some highlights. The first one is going to be the one you discussed earlier, the Freemasons. So Freemasonry refers to a fraternal organization that traces its origins to the local guilds of stonemasons. At the end of the 13th century, they regulated the qualifications of stonemasons and their interaction with other authorities and clients. Freemasonry has been the subject of numerous conspiracy theories throughout the years, which I'm going to believe most of them because, come on. Yeah. <laughs> Modern Freemasonry really consists of two main recognized groups, which is regular Freemasonry, not a creative name. Name, but they call it regular Freemasonry, which insists that a volume of scripture be open in a working lodge, and a lodge is where they commune, that every member professes to belief in a supreme being, that no woman be admitted, and that the discussion of religion and politics be banned, which seems very weird to say you have to be religious, but you can't talk about religion. And also, yeah, kind of missing the point of most of this in general, considering how many of the Founding Fathers were massively successful because... They were members of the Freemasons. Yes, I would say that saying no women and a belief in a supreme being is directly politics and religion. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so what's the other group? The other one is continental Freemasonry, which consists of jurisdictions that have removed some or all of those previous restrictions. So they're just kind of more free flowing, having a good time. They're probably the ones that your friends are part of, where it's just like, we're part of a cool secret club that has a cool name in history. Right. <laughs> so the local organization unit of a Freemasonry. So their chapters are referred to as a lodge. And these private lodges are usually supervised at the regional level by a Grand Lodge or Grand Orient. So there's no international worldwide group, so they say, that supervises Freemasonry. Each Grand Lodge is independent of each other. And some of them don't even recognize others as being legitimate, which kind of goes back to that one scholar saying that there's a lot of infighting within these groups that like, they don't even agree amongst themselves if they're a secret society or not. <laughs> so yeah, like you said, George Washington was a Freemason as well as many of the founders. He was actually, many of the original Freemason lodges were in Pennsylvania where they were doing a lot of their work. The Freemasons gained so much power throughout history that the Catholic Church deemed membership in a chapter to be against their rules at one point that you could get excommunicated for. That's fantastic. I love that. I'm just saying, if you're so powerful that you make the Catholic Church go, we got to take care of these guys, you're very powerful. You know they tried to sneak a Pope in there. You know they had a guy that's like, okay, he's a Freemason. We're going to raise him to 
to be super religious. We're going to get him in there. I feel like maybe one of the popes. Who knows? <laughs> Allegedly, one of the popes was a woman. So like, you know, there's a lot of conspiracy theories about the popes. That, which I love, but like the level of commitment that took. And then after that, they're like, we have to check and make sure you have a penis. <laughs> and it's like, you like the last one. I don't know why you're making this such a thing. I kind of don't like that this is a requirement. Right. <laughs> we should cover that on some episode. We should. You should. You totally should. So because the Catholic Church is just like, you can't join it. You can't be one of these guys. We fucking hate them. One of the biggest parts about the Masons is that they became strictly Protestant for a while. You could not be a Catholic and be part of Freemasons. But the thing is, the Freemasons is like kind of like the original group that almost a lot of secret societies base the blueprint on. So that meant that a lot of groups were just like, yeah, so fuck Catholics, right? <laughs> and like, it was just like, it became like a big thing for racist secret societies. Like the Ku Klux Klan, its own not so secret society. And it also holds its members to the purity test of not being Catholic. You have to partake in their extreme pageantry because they created extreme pageantry and elaborate names for everything. They had secret rituals, just like the Freemasons had their secret rituals. And they had to keep their membership private, which your friends refuse to do, Andrew. But that is a requirement. And so pretty much like these racist groups started kind of just being like, they have a cool thing over there and they're very powerful. We're going to form our own, but just for us. And it also spread out in some other ways, like the Order of the Star Spangled Banner, which like, if a name is that patriotic, bad news. Oh yeah, that's going to be horrible. Anything that like is just like, we are the most patriotic people in the world, run away because they are going to be into some sick shit. Their sick shit for the Order of the Star Spangled Banner, it was formed to make sure that the Irish stopped coming to America. Like it was making sure that not only were they heavily discriminated against, but that they could eventually sway public opinion and public offices to ban the immigration of the Irish to America. That's just like triggering at this point that they called that the order of the star spangled banner just because of the current climate of like the language of patriotism being used to like support so much fucking hatred and horrific policy. We're like Captain America and then it's like it's all just about like pure fucking evil. Oh, it's absolutely a name you'd see today. Had they been successful, by the way, this podcast would not exist. I mean, there might have been other worse outcomes. I don't want to speculate, but we know <laughs> <laughs> that would have happened. And no, I mean, I feel like the main difference here is that it's just like a group like this and the KKK are more open about it. But all the other ones, they had the same racism. It was just covert instead of overt. Oh, yeah. These were explicitly racist groups, but they all kind of based their setup on things that they saw that the Freemasons did historically. And so they formed their own secret society. And like, there's a reason they wear the hoods. A lot of them are not going around saying they're in the KKK, even though you're saying like they're more open about it. There's a reason they cover their faces. I mean, this was not as much secret society as again, but just my grandmother, because it's the best form of reference. I have here just wanted to join country clubs and her maiden name was Weintraub, which just immediately meant in what this is 1950s, she was not going to be accepted into a single country club. And this was done politically there. You'd receive a letter saying, oh, we're full up. We're not accepting new members until she changed her name. And then suddenly they, you know, when you tried a new club who didn't know it was Weintraub and there was openings here. So it was just the other secret societies I think were better at keeping the racism hidden, but didn't wear the mask. These, they kept the racism 
out in public and wore the masks. It's either way, it's there. It's just which side you're going to hide. So secret societies are so prevalent across college campuses now. We're not only just talking about fraternities and sororities, which I guess could also be considered secret societies. Like they do have big houses with their name out front, but like you're not supposed to know about like the hazing and stuff that goes on or their initiation rituals for many of them. And they're also kind of set up for you to have a group of friends, but also a group of connections that will help you in your professional career once you leave the university. So like I would consider fraternity sororities part of that, but also it goes deeper and more nefarious. Yeah. <laughs> My own personal example is there was a group on the campus of the University of Alabama called The Machine. And The Machine was made up of elite members of the most elite fraternities and sororities on campus. So like the most like best from money, best family name, they'd be tapped to join this other secret society where they would pretty much choose who was going to be the representatives in the student government beforehand. They would pick out everyone and then they would bring it back to their chapters and be like, you guys have to vote for these people. So that way campus life could then be guided to however they wanted it to go. They'd get more leeway if a fraternity was called hazing or something like the student government would not punish them harshly because it's all made up of people who have their positions because of the machine who is completely completely cool with how segregated and hazing and all this stuff the sororities and fraternities could be. They would also do that for local elections around the city of Tuscaloosa. They would have all of their members vote for certain people if they were eligible to vote in the city, as well as national elections. They would not require, but they would make it known what the chapter's preferred outcome would be. And you're kind of honor bound to follow that. And the entire time I was at Alabama, every year somebody was like, we're going to get a candidate that's going to beat the machine candidate. And it never happened once. <laughs> I mean, this is how regular politics work today, too. It's not so many we're going to tell, you know, have so many people in our group vote for you, but as to who gets nominated and who gets made the connection in the first place. I feel like there's so much talking about people that have been successful and got the head start by having parents with money and people focus on the money part, which is significant. But like the big part is just the fact that they can have any meeting in the world that they want. <laughs> like that is just to be able to get in the room in the first place is the big challenge for most people. But when you've got that connection, and it's like, yeah. And then you've got the connection of the guy who's making the phone call and saying, just, just say this meeting went well. That is a ridiculous advantage. It's a huge one. And you said politically, so let's get into it. The basis of the 2000 thriller, The Skulls, yeah. <laughs> which is the famous Yale group, The Skull and Bones. This is a secret student group that taps their members in their junior year, typically coming from wealthy and powerful families, as well as legacies from previous members. The alumni also function under the name the Russell Trust Association. So once you are no longer a Bonesman, which is what they call the students who are part of Skull and Bones, you are a member of the Russell Trust Association, which sounds so legitimate. It sounds legitimate, but also imagine going from I belong to this skull and bones to yeah I'm a wrestler it's like that is a significant step down in coolness it is a step down in coolness but I think that's by design Andrew I mean, you're right it's a huge step up in legitimacy it's something you can say in an elevator have it not sound crazy <laughs> yes we, you could just like meet another guy and just be like oh an another Russell Trust associate I see yeah <laughs> because you can't just be like oh are you a bonesman which was like is <laughs> yeah. a frightening thing to hear a politician say right. <laughs> to another politician so the Russell Trust Association actually owns land 
land and property that the group uses for their rituals and their meetings and their retreats. So it's none of it's owned by the students. It's all owned by alumni who are part of their own secret group called the Russell Trust Association. And if you're curious about famous members, George H.W. and W. Bush were members, as well as Senator and former Secretary of State John Kerry. George W. Bush and John Kerry, of course, ran against each other in 2004 in that presidential campaign, which means there was a point where we had two bonesmen going <laughs> head to head in an election where literally every time they were asked about being bonesmen, they were just like, next question, yeah. <laughs> which is terrifying. It is. It's like maybe if you're president, the keeping the secret of the skull and bone should not be the most important thing. Shouldn't isn't this a thing that the public should know at this point? <laughs> like they're like, how does this affect your relationship with each other that you're both part of this exclusive group? And they just be like, I can't tell you. Next yeah. question. And like, I don't like that. No. <laughs> what was anybody going to do about it? Right. Like, especially if they were, had both agreed, you know, obviously we're not going to say anything. You're not going to get anything out of either of them. And it's all very functional. Yeah. I mean, obviously it, it has continued to work despite the fact that we know it's a thing. It's not like we know much about it. It's just like, I get that presidents are going to keep secrets for the security of the nation. I don't love that it's like, no, I'm going to cover up my friend Boomer, who, you know, may or may not have committed a murder a while ago. That like once president, maybe this is stuff that should come out. I mean, all these presidents are just fucking shitbags, man. Yeah. <laughs> we can't trust any of them. I just don't like the idea of them all just being like, hand job Steve is running for president. Let's yeah. go. We're all voting for him. We're going to pull the strings the levers of power to get him in there. It's just like, <laughs> God damn it. My level of trust is just so low at this point. The only person I trust is Bernie fucking Sanders. Right, really. <laughs> he is just on Twitter every day, like such a king, saying the same shit he's said for a million years. Never <laughs> wavers. So comforting. What you see is what you get with old Bernie, and I appreciate that fact. Not to take it to Bernie and yet again. Sometimes Sometimes I get so sad about what could have been. I know. Truly. <laughs> it's comforting. It's like soup. It's like, oh, wouldn't this be nice? It's things are rough right now. Just some soup would be, would be great. Yeah, it's like soup, really predictable. It's always delicious. Cares about you for real. <laughs> soup that is for everyone. <laughs> yeah, this is why I love chain restaurants. I know exactly what I'm getting every time. No surprises. <laughs> oh, man. So one thing that's a popular rumor about the Bonesman, and I have no proof this is a Allegedly, don't sue me for this, but part of the initiation is that you have to lay down in a coffin and masturbate to completion while everyone else like kind of stands over you and watches, including whatever alumni are there that want to take part and view this activity. And <laughs> once again, this is all legend, but I think it's very funny. <laughs> I think that's a very funny thing. It's really funny. Like George W. Bush, his dad is an alumni, which means there's a chance his dad had to be like, that's my boy. <laughs> I believe it a hundred percent. And I bet it's one of the least freaky things that they've done. I mean, that feels horrifying for everyone involved. I wouldn't want to be on either side of that. Yeah. But that's the thing. Like if they make you do it because it's horrifying. And then like we were talking about before, it's like, there's this immediate threat that gets internalized. Like I have this shame. It's a shared shame. And like at any point, if I betray everyone, like I also betray myself, like all this shit. I can see from like a trauma perspective, like once you've endured that 
enjoying being in a sick way, like being on the outskirts and being like, that's my boy, you know, because it's like you want everyone else to have to endure it. You have to suffer to get the spoils, you know, just like I did. Pay your dues. Get in that coffin and you pay your dues. And just the bond afterwards of if you're feeling traumatized from this, from all these people that are now calling themselves your brothers saying we've been there too. It's okay. It's like, you know, they traumatized you, then made you feel safe. That's an instant lock in the relationship. Yeah, totally. And it's part of that lock too, is that it isolates you from other people. Like, it's like, we're the only people that understand, you know, like we're the people for you to be loyal to. We have your back. And I feel like then you're more likely to be controlled by whatever that organization is asking of you. No, you're right. It's it's forced trauma bonding, totally. which is insanely fucked up. It is, but obviously effective because some form of this has existed in like every secret society out there. Yeah. And some of this is just these like rich, stupid people, like not having enough adversity in their lives, yeah. like creating all of this adversity. That's true too. It's like, we don't have anything actually hard in our lives that we can bond over. What if we just dramatize each other for a while? Yeah. What if instead you just jerk off in a coffin while everyone <laughs> makes fun of the size of your dick and then, you know, that'll be something. There's three ways I can see this going. One, you're just like, fine. And you do it. <laughs> Two, uh, you're like, I cannot do this with everyone watching me. This is horrible. And also, you know what, guys, I'm tapping out. We've been at this for an hour and it's just not happening. I'm, <laughs> I'm getting performance anxiety. You guys have fun with your special little club. And then the third one, just being like, I'll have this over in 30 seconds. This is my shit. This is the best. I've been wanting this to happen for my whole life. And you put me in my exact scenario that I've always dreamed of. Some guy joined the Skull and Bones, not even realizing he was going to have a powerful friends for life. It was just like, I'm going to get to jack off in, in, a coffin <laughs> in front of some dudes. This is the secret society I want. And they're like, cool, you can be president now. And he's like, you know what? No, thanks. I'm good. Yeah, this was my pee. I would love to think we had one president who just like fell backwards into it just because he wanted to fulfill that very specific kink. Yeah. <laughs> That's interesting about like the different versions that you were imagining. I feel like just from my sense of what these like uber rich and powerful families are like and how they have to control the progeny to just repeat the cycle. The image I have is that it's like grandfather, you know, like the patriarch is like, okay, son, like, you know, it's time to go in and like, jerk off to the coffin and like, <laughs> not even a thought like you just do what grandfather says just like grandfather told you to intern with like president bush and you were just like of course grandfather you know like i do what the family asks of me sometimes it's an internship at the white house sometimes it's jerking off in a coffin whatever <laughs> it is i say yes because i'm a good boy like i feel like that's what's happening oh i'm sure you're right it's like what you do when you're rich you knew this was part of it this this is it yeah there are benefits to this yeah. and so i just do i do everybody's bit i do what's expected of me and at the end of the day i'm like a bush you know or whatever yeah at the end of the day you get a billion dollars it's like mm -hmm. yeah all right fine i'll put up with it for a billion dollars. <laughs> yeah, I would jerk off into a coffin for a billion dollars. Right. Oh, a thousand percent. <laughs> I don't want to know what the number is, but I'm sure it's much lower than I'm hoping it would be. Yeah. For which I would accept that job. Andrew, you better hope nobody ever like starts laying down like money on a table and being like, <laughs> at any moment I can stop doing this and take it back. So you stop when you see the amount that you need yeah. <laughs> and you just be like, damn, he laid down $25. <laughs> Look, I hope it's in the millions, but honestly, I could see like tapping out at seven thousand. It's you can you can do a lot. <laughs> seven thousand. I wish it was more than seven thousand, Andrew. I'm going to be honest with you. 
too. Angie's just like $7,000 and like a place on the school board. Yeah. <laughs> At least go up to 10, like seven. Look, I don't know how much this guy has to offer. Like, obviously, again, I would love it to be higher. I'm just thinking about the stuff I could buy right now with 7000 Honestly, none of it's that good. I think I picked too a lot. <laughs> you know what, though? I take it back because I feel like we're doing a weird, like we're pathologizing jerking off into a coffin in front of a group of people. <laughs> like maybe that's lovely. Like maybe that floats your boat. Yeah. <laughs> maybe I would have paid for this. <laughs> exactly. Maybe you would have paid for it. That's what I was looking for. It's not trauma bonding. Everyone's like light as air walking out. They're just like, that was great. What a great coffin night. I love coffin night. It's my favorite night of the year. <laughs> Imagine like some guys laying down the money and you say stop and it's like, okay, cool. So I pay you 7,000 and I get to jerk off in the coffin. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, but you know what, though? It is in part about vulnerability. Again, to go to that thing, it's like I'm thinking about that other aspect to it. Like there's the threat and everything. There's possible humiliation, but there's also like there's an exposure and like seeing people. I was thinking about like, okay, if everyone's having an orgasm, you're like seeing your brothers or whatever at this moment of like, you can't not be vulnerable in the exact literal moment of an orgasm. Like you have to be. So there's this, way that I don't know. I feel like it, it brings me back in my mind again to this intimacy thing. I'm like, there's this shared vulnerability happening. I think that's a very good point that, yeah, throughout a lot of this, there is that same level of like, you can just give me a hug. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> we don't need to go through this to get there. I just truly hope the Bushes didn't lock eyes. Going. That's all I hope. That's all I hope. <laughs> in their defense, but you had something on Antonin Scalia too, right? Right. So Supreme Court Justice and right wing zealot Antonin Scalia, when he died, it was revealed that when he died, he was surrounded by members of the Secret Order of St. Hubertus, which is an elite hunting society. And I just threw that in there because I think that means Antonin Scalia hunted people for sport. I mean, probably. I don't have proof of that, but it sounds like that is a group that would hunt people for sport. I'm with that. I'm willing to accept that as fact from now on. The secret order of St. Hubertus. <laughs> like that, that sounds like some most dangerous game stuff. Like, like literally he died. And so like all of a sudden, like people just kind of fly in. And like, I imagine they were all wearing like safari hats and like poofy pants and everything <laughs> and had their rifles and they just kind of stood above him. I just think that it's odd. And it's also just another example of like a very powerful person who had influence over the entire country was also part of a secret group that you can't tell anybody about that. And I don't like it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't like that their affiliation is with a secret group. I can understand conservatives, liberals, leftists, and the extreme right wing people. I can understand those groups. I don't like that there's a secret group on the side that could be like, hey, when this case comes up, we want you to vote this way. And him just being like, okay, but can we hunt another guy? And they're like, we will hunt another guy if you you vote the way we want you to. <laughs> that is terrifying. Yeah. Well, especially when you think like the whole reason they have the rule saying something like you have to be born in America to be president is because of the concept of having even the slightest divided loyalty is dangerous, which is an offensive concept in a lot of ways to begin with that it's not being born.
born here means you're, you can't be loyal to us. But you have people here that are decidedly divided here. They clearly have loyalty to the group they're saying they won't even tell you about to become president. Like, obviously, that's going to take precedence for them, which is deeply concerning. Yeah. If you have an entire group of people that have seen you jerk off into a coffin and like they have that over you, I don't trust you. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think that about covers it. We've got fantastic history here. Some very strange personal experiences with hangar branding and a book where they didn't put in enough letters and obviously where it went wrong, which is basically the existence of this to begin with. But that brings us to in their defense or we have to defend secret societies. Ellie, have any thoughts? Defending them? Yeah. I don't think so. I feel like at some point in the history, I had a thought about, I guess it was when the example with the like the bird wings, you know, I was thinking like, okay, like this probably has like indigenous roots and really non-toxic ways where it's just about community and like transfer of knowledge and wisdom and spirituality, like magic. You know, I feel like there could be a whole other version of secret societies that isn't about wealth hoarding and total control of the people of your country. And in that version, like that could be great. But this version where it's exactly like I'm like totally stuck on what we just talked about with like Scalia and like now I'm thinking about Brett Kavanaugh and like could totally see him being in one of these piece of shit societies. And it's like someone whispering in their ear, like, how are you going to vote here? And and I think the thing that's so interesting to me is to draw. It does make over what many of us know what's happening, which is that like all the way in America that rich and powerful white people primarily maintain that and like try to make sure hold on to it as tight as they can. This is like such an extreme version of that. So I feel like that extremeness like is what's so fascinating, but it's fucking horrible. It's terrible. (laughs) No, I don't think it's redeemed. There's no redeeming quality. I'm going to go out on the limb and say that. Except that I feel like all of these, you know, it's like toxic masculinity needs to be dismantled. Boys need to learn to express their love and intimacy for each other. And, you know, then maybe we can get somewhere. Yeah, I think that's a very good way to look at it. When what do you have? So I did a little research on my defense, which I never do, but I did for this one because I was like, I'm going to be a ringer on this episode. Yeah. <laughs> which was researcher Adam Parfait, delicious name, claimed that while most secret societies can be nefarious, they also provide places where members of outgroups could work together to carve out their own place in society. So while you do have the very powerful secret societies who are are working against pretty much everyone else, you have moments in history where everyone else got together and you have the suffragettes. You have women who like all got together and like, hey, we're going to form this group. We're going to fight for the right to vote and it's not going to be easy and you're going to get in trouble for it, which means it's going to be underground. You have immigrants who form their own kind of clubs and everything when they come to America so that they can carve out their own place and they don't have the same connections, but they have each other and they can help each other get through a society that doesn't want them there. And you have labor unions. Labor unions in some cases have been secret societies because they weren't pretty much allowed to even exist but they are carving out places for themselves in a society that wants to favor the other. They've been othered by the society. They formed their own secret society to find their own place. And I think that's cool. I think that's a positive way for these things to exist, but they have to exist in opposition of the evil ones in order for there to be any good out of them. Oh, I think that's a really good way to look at it. Yeah. And all of those examples, I mean, the core, the discrepancy is that none of those groups are run by like the 
most power, like the oppressor group. So yeah, like when you're in any kind of marginalized group and you're banding together to like make some kind of change happen or have community or whatever, like, yes, that's positive or it can be. Well, for me, in their defense, it's just that there is a massive amount of funding going through these groups. And without that, I don't think people realize how expensive it would be to rent a coffin to masturbate in. (laughs) I can't afford this on my own. The only way I can achieve this goal is by joining the Skull and Bones. Sure, it's cool that one day I might be president because of it, but ultimately, I want that coffin and I'm going to do what I have to to get it. (laughs) Understandable. You know what? I think that's the best defense out of all of us. <laughs> I agree. Well, <laughs> this was such a fun episode. Ellie Cremendall, thank you so much for being here. Everyone can follow you at Ellie Cremendall on Twitter, on Instagram. And guys, you absolutely should. She has fantastic tweets and, and videos that I just love every single one of. So guys, thank you so much for listening. As always, please subscribe. Give us five stars. It helps us out so much. We also have a Patreon down in the show notes. It helps us keep this show running. We're going to be back next week. We hope you'll join us then. When? I'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.